Well, last week we shared communion together. Tonight we're back in the book of Genesis where we left off. So if you want to join me in the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis as we continue our study through Genesis together, we're in chapter 11 this evening. As we looked at chapter 10 together, if you remember there, we sort of saw the uh, origin of nations or what's often referred to as the table of nations. In fact, the last verse of chapter 10 tells us these were the families of the sons of Noah. Remember after Noah and his three sons and their wives uh, stepped back off the ark after God had cleansed the earth uh, out of those three sons that Noah had and their wives, uh, the rest of population, the origin of every nation, uh, finds its roots uh, being traced back to one of those three sons, Shem, Ham, and and Japheth. And it tells us there in chapter 10 sort of uh, some of the descriptions of the different descendants and possibly some of the territories that they went to uh, that give to us the origin of some of the different nations that exist. Chapter 10, verse 32 says, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And it says, and from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So there's the the summarization. From these three sons, it says, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So we saw the list there of the dispersion of the nations and the different descendants. Now, as we come into chapter 11, it almost seems as if chronologically, very likely this could precede chapter 10 in the sense that it gives to us sort of the uh, specific way in which that dispersion kind of practically played itself out. In other words, we see how the different descendants of the three sons went to different directions and settled in different territories, and from that different nations were established all across uh, the earth that existed this day, but but how specifically did that happen? And a lot of times the scripture will do this. If you notice in reading the Bible, uh, things don't always show up in chronological order. In fact, a lot of times you'll see this, especially in biblical narrative, where you'll sort of get the overall picture of something. You'll sort of get the... Uh, you know, the telescopic view, I guess you could say, you know, kind of seeing things overall, the big picture from a distance. And then the Holy Spirit, after giving the broad picture, will kind of go back with the microscopic view and then kind of zoom the lens in and kind of then show a little more specifically how the events actually unfolded that you just read about in a prior section. And it seems that chapter 11, as it gives to us uh, the events of the building of, of Babel and the Tower of Babel and how God had to deal with that, that that very well was the circumstantial sort of crisis among humanity in that day that led to what chapter 10 records, the different nations being divided on the earth after the flood. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it does seem to indicate not only verbal language uh, and, and speech, of course, speech would indicate that which is verbal, but a language is something as well that could be written, uh, that could be conveyed uh, in other ways other than just through verbal articulation. So th- there's a universal language, a universal speech, whereby all of humanity is able to communicate freely with one another. And man, how efficient must that have been? I mean, for everybody to speak the same language, to understand each other, I mean, 
if you're married, I mean, you know how sometimes even just in a marriage relationship, you feel like you speak two completely different languages, you know, between a husband and a wife. I mean, can you think of all the languages that exist on this earth and you've ever been traveling, you're in an airport or even here in the United States or you go abroad and, and you hear someone speaking a different language and you, and you hear these, you know, sounds that are being made and you're thinking to yourself, that that is... They're saying something, and it probably sounds much the same way as people hear us speak uh, English. I mean, of course, we're arrogant Americans. We just uh, assume that, you know, what language was that? That's an interesting and curious question, too. What was the one language the whole earth was speaking in that day? Uh, I don't know. You know, it would be very interesting to see. Interesting, Zephaniah speaks of how one day it seems there will be a universal language again, whereby we might all, though as different nations, come together and praise God uh, with one tongue and, and one language. It seems that something of this nature will be restored in our worship of God. Again, what will it be? Uh, what's the language of heaven? I, I, I don't know, you know, but I'm thankful that God knows all languages. But in this day, there was something universal, a unique thing where the whole earth spoke one language and had one speech. And verse 2, however, though that must have been extremely efficient, notice how, as always, the things that God gives to us as gifts and that could be helpful and efficient, as humanity, we always pervert them. We always take the good and wonderful things that God gives to us, and we always corrupt them. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, God gives to us even certain God-given desires that he creates, and, and we take a, a God-given desire, and then we use it in a God-forbidden way. Uh, and, and, and so many of the wonderful things that we have, I mean, think of what we've done with technology. You know, we get this incredible thing like the internet, I and mean, what a helpful, incredible tool to transmit information and communication and can Google this and get an answer or anything. But like everything else, what do we do? We take something and whenever we get our hands on its humanity, we just, we got to pervert it and corrupt it and distort it and use it for wrong ways. And here they, I mean, how efficient they can all communicate together. And yet we see, unfortunately, the danger of what happened in that day, because as it said, when they came off of the ark, that the intent still of humanity, it says, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that's the problem. Because our hearts and the imagination of our hearts are evil, we always take anything God gives us and we just, in our own self-will, use it in wrong ways. Verse 2 says, It came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain, it says, in the land of Shinar. So it seems they're, they're moving eastward. Shinar would be a very fertile area in the, the area of what we know as, as Babylon. And this was a very uh, fertile area to live. It would be a, somewhere that would certainly be very pleasant and affluent to set up an establishment. And they go into that area, and therefore they dwelt there. It was a fertile crescent. It was somewhere where they could live and dwell very comfortably. And then verse 3, notice things begin to digress. It says, and then they said to one another, come, let us, and, and take notice of those two words there, let us. Notice how much of this it has that language. This is very man-centered. Uh, this is very self-centered and self-indulgent and self uh, sinfully defiant against God and what he intended for them. They said, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, notice, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us 
make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So they come together, it seems, in the area of Babylon, the area of Babel where, remember, it told us in the prior chapters, this is where Nimrod had sort of planted and established this particular city. Now, whether he was the one who uh, initiated this uh, and had this idea because it seems he sort of established the territory in that area or not, the bottom line is you see the corruption of their hearts, though they're extremely unified Here you see what begins to happen as they can come together collectively with their human willpower. They say, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And it says their intention was to build a city and a tower whose top would be in the heavens and to make a name for themselves. Notice the end of verse 4, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now take note of this, because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, when they stepped off the ark, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God's direct command was that they spread out. God said, I want you, this was God's command. God says, I don't want you to lump together and to come together in this one you know urban center where you're all god says no i want you to multiply and fill the earth that was the plan of god that was the command from the lord that they were to spread out they were to go to different territories they were to populate the earth and fill the earth now what do we find them doing here very shortly afterwards verse 4 says Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad, what God wanted them to do, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. In other words, what they're doing here is in direct defiance to the command of God. What they are doing is sinfully defiant and is directly disobedient to what God's direction and command for them was. And of course, this just represents, you know, that man-centered, self-indulgent, defiant attitude of humanity. And notice that that when brought together, where they were able to work together, do you see what end they were going towards? Their unification and their ability to work together collectively in an unhindered way actually wasn't something that was going to work together for the good. It actually was something that was leading to rebellion and defiance against God. Man is so corrupt. If we were completely unified on this planet, you know, here's the first attempt at what? Kind of like a one-world government, right? A one-world system. That, this is the first attempt at this. This is what our world you know, craves after and, and, and taught. We, that's what we have to have. We need to have, if we could just all goods come together, Every nation, unified currency and unified government, if we could just bring everything under one big unified umbrella and have a universal one-world system, all the problems would be resolved. No, they wouldn't. Problems would proliferate all the more because when man comes together in his corruption with that kind of power harnessed together, it's very efficient, but it is efficient in the way in where it leads us further away from God. It would lead us into greater rebellion. Because we would scheme plans and ideas where we become more man-centered and everything is about building a name for ourselves and doing everything we can to exclude God's word and God's will and God's presence out of our life because we don't need God. We can all do it together by ourselves. 
all the more it will lead us to be more self-sufficient and say, we don't need God, and we don't need God's word and God's commands and God's ideas. We're going to build ourselves a city and build ourselves a tower and build a name and a reputation for ourselves, and it becomes all about the representation of how, how this is all centered in man. And you see exactly what they're doing here, and it's all for them. They say, let us make bricks thoroughly. Let us build ourselves a city and ourselves a tower and make a name for ourselves. Now, interesting, as they begin to seek to use building materials, bricks, it says that they're going to use instead of wood, and that makes sense because that would be a lot more permanent building. Verse 3 tells us that they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. Now, just a little interesting sidelight. Some of the early, uh, whatever you call the people who go look for oil, tycoons or whatever you call those kind of people, I don't remember who it was, that started going to the Middle East and really started looking for oil in the Middle East, admit that one of the things that led them to do this is this very chapter right here because they realized if they had asphalt, then that would indicate that there are oil reserves over there in that land, and they took seriously that that area around Babylon, Iraq, that the whole Middle Eastern area there, that area has got to be rich with oil because if they had those resources and those reserves to do those things in that day, there must be deposits of oil throughout that territory. And taking God's word at face value, some people got really, really rich. So you know, it doesn't hurt to live by the Bible. Trust me. It, it pays off in more ways than one. And here they're building now these bricks and, and seeking to do something whereby they may build something for themselves and make a name for themselves. And again, that's just the, the, the perversion of our nature, you know, wanting to make a name for ourselves. We exist for the glory of who? God. Something really wrong when we're trying to build something to make a name for ourselves, for our own recognition. Let's make a name for ourselves. No, no, no. The Bible teaches let's bring, all that we do to bring glory to the name of God, to the name of Jesus. And something's very distorted when it's so man-centered that the whole intention is to build something whereby our name, people would know our name. And they hear our name, they go, oh, that's a, that's a neat thing there. Yeah, it's a man-centered thing is what it is. And here they're building not only a city, but building this temple. And it would basically be sort of an ancient, what they would call ziggurat. If you kind of picture like a pyramid in your mind with ascending steps. The idea is not to build something to reach the heavens. The idea was to go up to the top where there would be sort of an altar type area where they would be involved with the zodiac. And the idea was that the gods would come down from the heavens. They would be as close as possible so that they might seek the gods to come down from the heavens to direct them. So it was a religious worship system. It was a perverted worship system that was excluding God, excluding his will and his plan. And this is exactly from the very beginning where mankind was. And it's exactly as we read to the end of the Bible, what will happen when we see Babylon and the literal city of Babylon that will exist in the last days and that whole corrupt system once again. Babylon in the Bible always represents a corrupt world system that's in rebellion to God's plan in God's purposes. So here they are constructing this thing here, building this tower uh, for themselves, which was just a religious center of worship, lest they would be scattered abroad. They want to stay together. Verse 5, notice, though they're in complete rebellion, it says, verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built 
And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So God says, Come, notice again the, the language, let us go down. Notice the, the plural language there, let us. Here again you have uh, communication among the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who's God talking to? Well, you have inner Trinitarian communication here. Let us. Remember back in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and in our likeness in a plural sense. Here you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit interacting and communicating with one another. Let us go down there, God says, verse 7, and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, which, interesting, Babel literally means uh, the gate of the gods, but Babel in Hebrew sounds like the word Balal, which literally means confusion, and that's why this term was used. Let's call it, call it Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, notice, the Lord scattered them abroad all over the face of the whole earth. So as God's watching this thing, here's mankind, all the world collectively harnessing all their energy, all their efforts in their unification with their one language and one speech, and they're defiantly, defiantly rebelling against God and basically thinking that here they are, they don't need God, they can push God aside, and they're going to do their own thing. But notice, even the rebellion of man never thwarts the ultimate will and the plan of God. Sometimes we watch somebody do something a little rebellious or we see a situation or a group doing something a little rebellious or something starts to get a little corrupt because of rebellion. We're thinking, oh no, man, that rebe- that's it's just going to ruin everything. Well, not necessarily. Because in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And, 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 and ultimately, there is no wisdom or counsel, the Bible says, that stands against the counsel of the Lord. He works all things together to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1 says. Even the rebellious efforts of all the world in that day. We're not going to be scattered abroad. We're going to build our little tower and we're going to stay right here. And God goes, okay, we got to put an end to this. This is just... <laughs> and God goes down there and he says he just confuses their language. So now you wonder, okay, where all the origin of languages come from? Well, here you have the answer scripturally. This is where the origin of languages come from. It was a God-created thing because God said, if they have that much unification, though it would be very efficient, because man, that would be so efficient if we could all just talk the same language. Imagine what we could get done. But God says, no, though it would be very efficient, it also would be extremely dangerous because we would not be able to handle that kind of power as God recognized here. So he gave different languages whereby there would be just enough distinction where certain Groups of individuals would be able to understand each other, but others would not. So there would be just enough separation so that we would be tempered and in moderation. The power and freedom we have as humanity wouldn't allow us to just corrupt our ways altogether in ways more than what we already do by nature in our sinful humanity. So God goes down and he confuses their language and instantly it says, verse 8, that they ceased building the city. The work just stopped. One day God went down and I mean, what did he do? All of a sudden... Everybody's talking, hey, Joe, bring me a hammer and you know, bring those bricks up here. And then all of a sudden, 
what? You know, and, and, and this guy's not understanding what he's saying. And, and can you imagine how strange it must have been all of a sudden you have different groups and these three or four people over here, they can understand each other, but then you have this group over here and they're, what, 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 that's, what are these guys doing? They're, they're talking gibberish. Did, did they drink something before they came to work this morning? And what's the matter with these guys? And then they start to realize that there's all these different segregations of different languages being spoken. And ultimately, of course, when they realized they couldn't efficiently communicate, this then led, it says here, to the dispersion. It says from there, verse 9, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth, which was what? His will, his plan. God's plan still came about. He still fulfilled his purpose the way he wanted to. And ultimately, you know, we can't override God. God's going to do what God's going to do. You know, we have to hang on to that because, you know, evil happens. Our world, evil things happen, wicked things happen, rebellious things happen. And I don't understand how God does it other than the fact that, that God does it. He does it. But let us never think that even the most wrong and, and, and ruinous and rebellious kind of things that we see happen ultimately can somehow stop God from still fulfilling what God wants to fulfill. It may, it may bring a little detour or a delay, or, but God is always on the throne. And he will still fulfill his purposes, and he'll, he'll do whatever's necessary to still bring about ultimately what his purposes are. And here God says, okay, you, you, don't, you don't want to scatter and do what I want to do? Uh, then, then I guess I'm just going to have to come down there and help you with that. So God comes down, confuses their language, and scatters them. This reminds me of what happens in the book of Acts where God tells them, you, know, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the early church happens, and what happens? It seems they fall in love with this idea of wanting to become one big cluster in Jerusalem. And, 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 and in a way, whether it was conscious or subconscious, they're, they're building this mega kingdom in, in Jerusalem. And God says, wait a minute, what about Judea? And what about Samaria? What are the most parts of the world? So what does God do? God, Acts 8 says that God sends a persecution. And God allows problems and pressures and pain and, and difficulties to come into the church, in a sense, and, 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 and that causes embers to fly in different directions, whereby they then end up going into Samaria, and ultimately God continues to cause the church to flourish and to go in other directions in the way in which God intends it. So you know, let us hang on to that. God's going to accomplish his plan. Don't be discouraged. If you have things that have happened or are happening, don't let that dishearten you. God will still do what God's going to do. The rebellion of man can't ultimately override the sovereignty and the will of God. And here God confuses them, scatters them abroad over the face of the earth with different languages. And chapter 11, verse 10 now tells us of a genealogy once again. This time the genealogy focuses in specifically on Shem. And this is one of Noah's sons through which the messianic line will come. And Shem, it told us in the prior chapter, had multiple children. But notice we now just focus on the specific son, verse 10, Arphaxad. So we're going to follow his line. Again, these individuals had many different sons and daughters, but the Bible doesn't give us every single name. It simply wants to trace the line of Jesus Christ. That's always the goal of the Bible with genealogies is typically to trace the messianic line. So we follow it through Shem now, and Arphaxad, it says, in verse 11, after he begot Arphaxad, Shem then lived another 500 years and begot sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived 35 years, and he begot Selah. And Selah himself lived 400 and plus years and had sons and daughters. 
And then he begot Eber, verse 14. And then it tells us, verse 15 and 16, that Eber then ultimately, after 34 years, begot Peleg. And Peleg lived, it says, 430 years, begot sons and daughters. And then when he lived 30 years, he begot Ru. Uh, and ultimately, verse 20, Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarug. And after he begot Sarug, Ru lived 207 more years and begot sons and daughters. And notice the, the age of man is beginning to decrease now. If you take notice of this list as you go through as well, that longevity that used to exist, again, because sin entered the world, we see the lifespan of men is beginning to decrease here. Verse 22, again, Sarah lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Sarah lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And then Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. So we come all the way down now to Terah specifically, which is going to be the origin and the beginning now of the lineage of Abraham, who will become the father of the Jewish nation, which will be the nation, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, through which Jesus Christ the Messiah will come. So we come now to a very interesting thing. Again, Here's just another one of these lists again, and we think, man, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit, if you think of anything God, anything God could have written in the Word about, and yet God gives to us things like this, these details and these names. And to us, in one sense, today, you know, practically, by way of application for us, we go, you know, these names, they, they really mean, they're just a list of names to us. But again, remember, what to us is, just looks like a list of insignificant names. To God, these are critical individuals that are a part of his plan that he's accomplishing and fulfilling on the earth. They're important and they're very significant to God. And he knew their name and everything about them. And they were handpicked and handchosen. And the part they played personally was critically important to God, though they seem very insignificant and, and sort of to us like, well, what, what, what does that really matter? And, you know, that should be a great encouragement, not only to remember that God is a God of detail and he knows your name and he knows everything about your life, but a lot of times we have a tendency to think, well, you know, I'm just... I'm so insignificant. What is what is my what do I, I hand out a bulletin or you know I, I I hold babies in nursery or you know I, I do things on a computer or I, and 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 a lot of times we think that there are certain things that we do in serving the Lord and we think well it's just so insignificant. No, it's not. No, it's not. God's recording every aspect of your service and every part that your life plays in his critical plan, and maybe you do live in some obscure, unknown realm, and maybe you serve in ways that nobody sees, and, and nobody's aware of the prayers that you pray in intercession, or nobody's aware of the three trash cans that you dump that nobody else sees, or the crumbs that you cleaned up, or the vacuum that you ran, but you know what? All of those things, God has record of all that, and God will reward all that, and you are significant. And others may see you as insignificant, but please know that God does not. God sees you as an important, critical component and an individual who is not only one of his children, but a part of the process of what he's doing to fulfill his plan. All these names, every single one of them had a part in God's plan and ultimately completing a process 
of the bigger thing that God was doing. And what a beautiful thing that God takes note. And he hasn't changed. He's a God who changes not. And he takes note of who you are and what you're doing. So keep plugging away in whatever that is. Verse 26, we now begin to look at the line of Terah, as I said. And notice Terah, it says, lived 70 years and begot Abram, who ultimately will become Abraham, who will be the next sort of character study that will carry us through a good number of chapters ahead now. So Terah has Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Those are his three sons. And this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran, Abram's brother, says begot Lot. Uh, so Lot will be Abram's or Abraham, as we know him later when God changes his name. Lot will be Abraham's nephew. And remember, Lot becomes a critical component we'll see in the chapters ahead as well. So there's a direct relation there. It says, verse 28, and Haran, that's one of Abram's brothers, he died, it says, before his father Terah in his own native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Haran, Abram's brother, dies, and it seems very likely because of this close connection that develops between Lot and Abram, who becomes Abraham, as sort of nephew and uncle, very possible in the same way that we might as uh, Lot's father Haran died, it seems, earlier than was expected, that maybe Abraham sort of took him in as a fatherly figure to raise him, so this relationship established, this bond was connected there between Abram and his nephew Lot as Haran died while they were still living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, verse 29 says, And then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And remember, she ultimately will have her name changed to Sarah, as God changes their names. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, uh, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. Verse 30, here's another important insight the Holy Spirit gives to us for the Days ahead and further things we'll look at. It says, verse 30, Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren and she had no child. Now take note of that because that becomes very important. In other words, the Holy Spirit is informing us in advance, even before God's calling on their life, God's plan and God's purpose. Already God's laying before us the complete insufficiency of all human ability all human capability to accomplish and fulfill God's plan because we know what's going to happen. God's going to call Abram and he's going to say, Abram, through you and through your line and your descendants, all nations will be blessed. And, and through his son, his son would have the promise of the Messiah in his genes to perpetuate. Well, that's a real problem when his, life, his wife, and the language indicates very clearly the idea of, of, of infertility, that, that she had a condition whereby she was not able to conceive. She was barren. And humanly, it was therefore an impossibility for them to be able to accomplish and fulfill God's purpose and God's plan. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that the Holy Spirit lays before us Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12, because in Genesis chapter 11, you have 
man in all of his own efforts and willpower and ingenuity saying, we're going to do this and we're going to build this and we're going to build this tower and it's going to be up to the heavens and we're going to make a name for ourselves and, and we're going to, we're going to, in all our brain power and effort and energy and, and all their best efforts and it fails and falls apart. And then you come to chapter 12 where God says, I will. It's not let us. When God's plan happens and God's purpose happens, God says, I will, I will, I will. God says, I will bless you. And God says, I will make your name great. They say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. God says to Abraham, no, I'm going to make your name great because you're the one I called. You're the one I've chosen. You're the one that I intend on using as my instrument. And in chapter 11, you see the self-will of man trying to fulfill something in the flesh. And it just falls apart at the seams in utter destruction. God has to ruin it, in essence. And then in chapter 12, you see the will of God. And when the will of God happens and it's something orchestrated by the Spirit, God's the one behind the whole thing. And God does it and builds it in his way. Interesting, too. Chapter 11, whew, big city, big tower. All, chapter 12, slow and steadies the pace. As God gives the promise, and they walk it out in faith, and they gradually inherit God. Because, see, God's a wise master builder. And as God calls Abram, it's not this instant overnight kind of thing. It's kind of this gradual, you know, healthy thing where God is building something, but at the same time, he's building faith in people, and he's teaching Abraham how to be a worshiper and how to be dependent, and he's teaching other people that God fulfills his promises and fulfills his plans. And, and interesting to see just the contrast even between the, the way of man building something and the way of God accomplishing and fulfilling his will now in the calling of Abraham as God fulfills his purposes. So Sarai, important thing to note, was barren. She had no child. And Terah, Abraham's father, took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, Abram's wife, and they went out with them, it says, from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So from Ur of the Chaldeans to the area of Haran, probably about a 700, 800 mile journey. So quite a, quite a distance they travel now. And it seems they're making their way now to Canaan. Now, no doubt, the reason why they are on their way to Canaan is, as we're going to see in chapter 12, because God has put a calling on Abram's life. God appears to Abram, Acts 7 tells us, speaks to him and tells him, as we're going to see in chapter 12, verse 1, get out of your country from your family and go to a land that I will show you. So the reason they're leaving Ur of the Chaldeans now to go ultimately to Canaan is because of the call of God upon Abram's life. Now what seems to happen, it seems here that rather than Abram fully cooperating with that, that his family, Lot and his father, kind of hear about this and they join up with it. So they begin to move in that direction, but notice they now come and dwell in Haran. And Haran is basically, it was sort of kind of like a last oasis, a last um, kind of fertile oasis type area to dwell at before you would cross over some real desert area to ultimately get into the land of Canaan, which, remember, was a land the Bible says flowing with milk and honey. It was a prosperous land. 
So Haran is one of those kind of places where knowing that you're about to have to go through some really desert area, it was kind of the last place to really settle in and be comfortable. And it seems that as they're journeying along as a family, they come to Haran and they stop and they dwell there. And it says, so the days of Terah, Abram's father, were 205 years, and then Terah died in Haran. So they stop in Haran, and there's dispute over how long that they were there. I've heard five years, 15 years. I've, I've heard conflicting things. The bottom line is they get delayed and they stop for a while in Haran rather than going all the way to Canaan where God called them and told them to go. Now, Take note, as just read with me, if you would, chapter 12, down 1 through 4. Notice the language. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, and notice the past tense, had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you... Notice the difference in language. I will make you a great nation. He's got a wife that's barren. (laughs) And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, a promise referring to the Messiah. Verse 4, So Abram, it says, departed as the Lord had spoken to him personally, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and now finally goes in to the land of Canaan. So, Interesting series of events that take place here. It tells us in Acts chapter 7, and in fact, you might just want to jot this down in your notes. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 7, because there the Holy Spirit, through Stephen's sort of refutation before the religious leaders, gives us a very interesting insight to what happened. It tells us this in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, that Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, hear this, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, which was their native land, and dwelt in Haran, he didn't go to Canaan, he dwelt in Haran, and from there, once his father was dead, seems there was a time they waited there until his father died, and then they moved once again, and from there, when his father was dead, God moved him to this land, the land of Canaan, in which you now dwell. So, the Bible tells us that what took place in Abram's life was that there was an incomplete obedience when the call of God came upon his life. That God spoke to him, as we read here in Genesis chapter 12, but the Holy Spirit indicates the Lord had said, past tense. Not the Lord said, the Lord had said to Abraham prior to the time when he's now departing, and he records for us the call of God. Acts chapter 7 fills in the detail that when Abraham was in Mesopotamia, the idea is back in Ur of the Chaldeans, and it says, important five words, before he dwelt in Haran. 
They're living in Haran until his father dies. They don't go all the way into Canaan the way God tells Abram to. And while they're living in Haran, it says before they ever got to Haran, God had appeared and spoken to Abraham back when he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And saying to him what we read here, Abram, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And God says, because I have a plan for your life. I'm going to create a nation through you and you're going to be a blessing to all nations on the earth. So I point this out for this reason, because, you know, here's Abram. And what is he held before us as the father of faith? This man who was strong in faith, who believed God, and he had great triumphs in faith. But yet Abraham also had an incomplete faith at times. And at times, as we're going to see as we study his life further, he had lapses in his faith. Because the Holy Spirit's indicating to us that that time in Haran was actually a time of delay where he was delaying complete obedience to God's calling and God's plan for his life. That he kind of went somewhere for a while, for whatever reasons that was, and he allowed himself to make some, some concessions and compromises for his own whatever personal things was, that he made some concessions, maybe it was emotional pressure, maybe it was family things, maybe it was comforts, maybe it was just some of his own you know, fears or struggles or apprehensions. And, and he, in essence, he was dwelling in Haran in a sense of delay of fulfilling where God told him he was really supposed to be at and what he was really supposed to be doing. So in a sense, he stops short and he hedges and pulls back from what God ultimately wanted him to do. And that's a great encouragement to me anyway because it makes me realize that, you know what, his faith, it wasn't a perfect faith. It was a growing faith. He was learning and he was growing and understanding how to take steps of faith and how to walk out. And, you know, God's so patient with him. God's patient with him. And you know what, in following the Lord, God calls us to do things and he tells us to do things. And you know what, we don't always perfectly stay right on track. Sometimes we get delayed Sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we don't, we don't walk things out in obedience the instant God tells us to, and we kind of give a partial obedience or incomplete obedience, and we kind of go part way, and then we kind of get delayed and stop, or we, we slow up, or, or we kind of take a little detour for a little while. And God said, you were on track. What would you go and detour? And whatever it was, this is what the Bible tells us actually happened in Abraham's life. Interesting, if you think about what God's telling him to do, you have some compassion for the guy. God speaks to him, and it says that God just appears to him and says to him, get out of your country, leave your family and your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. The God of glory appears to Abraham. Abraham's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. They've done excavations in that territory and have discovered that that ancient culture of Ur of the Chaldeans was a very developed ancient society. It had libraries. It had indications that they understood things like trigonometry. There were universities there. It was an affluent, wealthy area. They found what they think are even like sort of like ancient hot tub type things. So, so Ur of the Chaldeans was not a bad place to live, if you understand what I'm saying. Abram was living in a pretty comfortable territory. It also was a pagan territory. They worshipped the moon god, Nanor. And Joshua chapter 24 tells us that Terah, Abraham's father, was a worshiper of idols. So here's Abram. He knows nothing of the one true and living God. 
You know, he's living in a nice, comfortable, affluent metropolitan area, you know, a developed city, and, and he's got this comfortable little lifestyle. He's probably got, you know, a two-camel garage and, and all. He's got everything that you know, anybody could possibly ask for, and he's in this comfortable, stable environment. And then all of a sudden, the God of glory appears to him. God just interrupts his life. God breaks into his world like he does us. You know, we're often wherever, and, and, and God just interrupts his life. And God says, you know what, I want you. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I don't know about you, but I know that was my story. I wasn't looking for God. God just interrupted my life. And God just chose to break into my world where I was at. Abraham, please understand, hear me, this one who God chooses and uses as the father of faith and, and the father of the messianic line of Jesus Christ and the father of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, he was an idol worshiper. You have to see the grace of God in this. There was nothing about Abraham that made him worthy of any of this. He was a pagan idol worshiper. And God just breaks into his world, reveals himself to him, and by the grace of God says, you know what? I have a purpose and a plan for your life. I want to use your life for something wonderful. I want to do something incredible in your life. And picture Abraham. He just met the, the God of glory and God says to him, uh, and here's what we're going to start with. I want you to leave your country and I want you to leave your family and I want you to go to a land that I'll show you later on. Now, that's pretty tough. That's a pretty tall order. But see, when God calls you to follow him, he calls you to follow him. And, and to follow God, it always means a life of faith. It means trusting what you don't understand. It means living by faith without reasoning and, and, and being able to put all the pieces together. And when God says, follow me, whether it's that moment he calls you to follow Jesus Christ, you can guarantee you're going to have to leave some things behind. There are things that you're going to have to leave behind of the old life. Now, it may not be uprooting from where you live and moving across the world and leaving all your relatives. It may not necessarily be that, but there are aspects of the old life that you've got to be willing to leave behind. What you know and what's comfortable and everything that makes you feel secure, you've got to be willing to let those things go. And in the same way, when the call of God comes upon our life, even as Christians, maybe God is going to call you to do something or ask you to serve him in some way or... He, you know, he has some land or something that he wants you to do. And guess what? When God calls you to follow him in whatever that may be, God says, I want you to leave here and I want you to go there. You've been a part of this. I want you to be part of this. I want you to be part of this now. Or, or I want you to take this new step. Or this. Guess what? You have to be willing to venture out in faith. And you need to be willing, if you're going to follow God, to leave behind some aspect of the past. And for Abram, it was to get out of his country. It was literally to geographically leave everything. Imagine him going to, 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 to Sarah. The God of glory appeared to me. Well, he did? Who's the God of glory? Well, he's the one true and living God. Uh, okay, Abram, and well, what, what does that mean? Well, here's what he said. He said to pack up the Ur Hall... And everything that we own, to leave all the family, and again, understand, family roots in that day, way, way on a higher plane of devotion. and Their survival was dependent on staying together as families in that day. So you know, 
Sometimes we think that we're devoted. To, it was nothing the way we are today in our culture to the devotion they had of family ties because families dwelt together to survive, literally. They were interdependent on each other. I want you to leave all your close emotional relationships. I want you to let go of all those things, pack up the old Ur Hall, and God said, we're going, to, we just, we're going to another land. Okay, what land are we going to? Uh, he told me that just go and he'll tell us once we get going. Excuse me? Are you sure, Abram? Well, I'm sure. I know God spoke to me. Are you certain God spoke to you? He told you to leave all this, to go somewhere, and you don't even know all the details? Yeah, that's what he told me to do. Do you want to talk about life of faith? That's a life of faith. But that's what the call of God is like. And that's what embracing and following the call of God is like. Listen to what Hebrews 11 verse 8 says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, listen to these words, not knowing where he was going. Are you willing to do that? <laughs> he, he obeyed and he went out, and he didn't even know where he was going. All he knew was, I know I'm generally supposed to go that way. I know, I'm, I know that's, God said go that way. Leave this. Head that direction, and God says, I'll show you all the particulars and the specifics once you get there. And see, if you're going to follow the call of God in your life, you and I need to be willing, it says, to obey when he calls us to go where he's calling us to go. And to trust God that as we go progressively, he will reveal more and he'll work out the particulars. There are plans and purposes God has for your life, and he's going to lead you in different directions and different things in your own specific life. And you need to, by faith... Say, look, I am. You know, faith isn't having all the details. A life of faith, we think a lot of times, is, is taking steps without evidence. That's not necessarily a walk of faith, taking steps without evidence, because sometimes we can be presumptuous and foolish. A life of faith is obeying God and doing whatever God asks you to do, despite the personal consequences in your life. Because you better believe there were some consequences and sacrifices that Abram had to endure when he had to go to his family and give up everything there in Ur of the Chaldeans and say, God's told me to leave and to go that way. And he's telling me he's promising some pretty incredible things. And imagine him hearing verse 2, I will make you a great nation. A great nation? I don't even have a kid. And I got a barren wife on top of it. And they were already getting the Denny's discount at the age they were at. You understand what I'm saying? It was not looking real good. You know, from a human perspective, this did not look like a real practical thing was going to just... They were already advanced in years. And here God is saying, no, I'm going to give you a child, I promise. Yes, I'm going to make you a great nation. A great nation. I'm going to use you, Abram, as the father of a new people, a distinct nation. Of course, it would be the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, who would become God's chosen people on the earth. The, the, the people, again, why are the Jews special? It's not because there's something special about them. The Jews are special because God, by his grace, elected and chose them. There was nothing special about Abraham. He was a pagan idolater. And 
the thing that made them God's special people and makes them still God's special people is God, by his grace, elected them and chose them and said, you are my called and chosen people. Abraham, you are my called and chosen vessel, and through you there will be a called and chosen nation whereby I will fulfill all of the eternal plans of redemption for all human history. And through this chosen people, through this particular nation, God says, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Again, it's all... It's all God's doing. It's God's blessing. It's not, a, you know, again, human ingenuity and a sweat like the Tower of Babel. We're going to do something. No, God says, I'm doing something. And so if I'm doing something, I can use whoever I want. Interesting. God doesn't go to the most, God goes and gets a pagan idol worshiper and he radically blows his mind, reveals himself to him, and he says, all I'm asking you to do is follow me by faith. You follow me by faith, you obey, and God says, I will do all the rest. You'll receive an inheritance. Abram didn't earn an inheritance. He didn't work for anything. He walked it out by faith, and God did it, and God gave it to him, and he just received by faith what God was doing. I will make you a great nation. God says, verse 2, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I think when we follow God and we fulfill God's calling and plan, in a sense, practically, that's what God wants to do with your life. God wants to do something great with your life. And God wants to bless you. God wants to bless your reputation. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus said, that people would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus doesn't want to make your name great so that you can be glorified. Oh, this... Oh, that guy, he's so, oh, his personality or the way he communicates or, oh, she can sing so be- No, that's not what God wants. God wants to glorify who you are and what you do in such a way that it radiates the glory of the God that you serve and the work he's doing through your life. That's why he chooses insignificant people like 1 Corinthians 1 says, right? <laughs> he chooses the foolish things and the weak things and the base things of the world in such a way whereby no flesh could glory in his presence. God's very wise in the way that he selects a lot of times who he'll work through because he realizes that our tendency is to taint things. So God, by his grace at times, will use individuals in such a way whereby he would be able to bless, but in such a way that they ultimately wouldn't allow that blessing to affect them because then things would crumble like the Tower of Babel But with Abraham, he was humbly walking this out in faith, figuring it out day by day, and he wasn't perfect. He got delayed, and he probably doubted just like all the rest of us. Again, the awkward conversations with his wife, and are you sure, and yeah, I believe, and and walking it out. But God says, verse 2, my intention is that you would be a blessing. And when God works in your life and calls you, that's what God wants you to be. God wants you to be a blessing. God wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing to other people. God, by his grace, wants to bless you, not because you deserve it, but he wants to bless you so you can be a conduit and so that you can be a blessing. So be encouraged by that. God wants to make you a blessing in the world where he's sending you into, wherever that may be. In verse 3, God says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth, again, there's that messianic promise, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because through Abraham's line the Messiah would come. But again, God's covenant with Abraham beginning to be made here in verse 3, because that was God's chosen man and will become God's chosen nation, God promises, I'll bless those who bless you. 
Those who support you and bless you, God says, I will bring a blessing upon them in return. And he says, those who curse you and resist you and rebel against you, God says, they will put themselves in opposition to me and they will incur a curse upon themselves. And you know what? The Bible I read says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if from the origin of the first soul that would become his chosen nation, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, God said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. I don't see anywhere where God has changed that. So to me, that tells me two things. It is very wise to be on the side of loving and blessing God's chosen people, the Jews. And to be seeking to bless in any way that we can the nation of Israel. Personally, I believe one of the only reasons historically in recent history that God has had to continue to have some blessing upon our nation has been our support and our endeavor to have with solidarity standing with Israel and to bless the nation of Israel. And you notice whenever any nation, any people, any group seeks to curse or come against the nation of Israel, God says that, that root and that, that path will always be a cursed path. The Arab people and, and those who, who despite, not that all the Arab people do, because there are Arab Christians, so don't misinterpret what I'm saying, but those in that area who resist and fight against, and more than that, want to deny the existence of God's chosen people, God says they will never prosper. Not only will they not prosper, God says that is a path of cursing. God's going to say in the next few verses later on, in, in verse 7, he's going to say, to your descendants I give this land. God gave the land to Abraham and to the Jew. It was God. That's God's choice. You're fighting against God to fight against God's chosen people. And you know, what a wonderful thing. As we continue to look at the life of Abraham, we'll, we'll pick up here next week, but what incredible lessons there are of what it means to follow God and to live by faith following after the Lord and whatever he may be directing you to. And to know that a life of faith and a life of obedience is a life that will inherit God's blessing. Listen, you don't have to be talented. Praise God. You don't have to be smart. Hallelujah. Have faith and obey God's voice. What has God said to you? What has God shown you? What has God spoken to you? In the small things and the huge matters, whether you understand it or not, obey in faith and let God work out all the details in the process. Amen?